Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, July 30th, 2021. I'm Andrew Walworth. Today, we have something a little different than our usual Friday fair, but we think it is well worth your time. It's an introduction to our Real Clear Defense podcast. And today, it is a conversation between Real Clear Defense editor David Craig and Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District. Gallagher served for seven years on active duty in the Marine Corps and was twice deployed to Iraq. He currently serves on the House Armed Services and Transportation and Infrastructure Committees. So with that, I'll turn it over to David Craig and his team. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash podcast with today's special guest, Representative Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin's 8th District, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. <laughs> uh, Mike and I actually were at the same unit in 2006 or seven in the Marine Corps, I believe, 2nd Intelligence Battalion. Isn't that right? Yeah, I was actually, uh, first Intel was my home unit, but I, out of MOS school, uh, a week before graduation, the head of the school was like, can you be ready to deploy in a couple weeks? So I deployed <laughs> with uh, second CI human, uh, counterintelligence human intelligence company. And then I actually, because we were getting replaced by my unit, first Intel, first CI human, I volunteered just to stay. So I came home for like a month and then went back to Iraq. Uh, so I actually, it was actually a great decision because I got to be, I got to do two tours as what's called a HET OIC, a human exploitation team OIC, right. uh, which is kind of what you want to do if you're a human guy. It's the most fun job. And those jobs were disappearing, at least for second lieutenants and first lieutenants. So I got in while the getting was good. And the continuity, too, is huge if you do that. Yeah, yeah. my theory was, particularly since, you know, I was, what, 22 and single. I mean, I was in it. You know, I was I knew the area. Uh, why not just stay and, you know, get as much out of the experience as possible and contribute as much as I could? So I'm not sure now a, a 37-year-old married father, Mike Gallagher, would make the same decision. <laughs> but at 22, I thought I was invincible and very much enjoyed running around Western Iraq. And so we never even knew that we were with the same unit, but we met again somewhat briefly at graduate school. And I believe it was the National Defense Intelligence College at the time, now the National Intelligence University. Yes. Uh, wait. So, what year were, were you? Were we in the same class there? Or yes. Two thousand nine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, good name change, by the way. N- yes. NIU is better than NDIC. Um, yes. <laughs> what did you write your thesis on? Um, well, it's funny you say that. I wanted to ask you first because mine relates to what you have been working on quite a bit lately, which is, I think, the title of my thesis was. China and Southeast Asia was China becoming a regional hegemon. Um, Oh, interesting. Well, you were way ahead of the curve then, because at that point... Yeah, it wasn't popular then, that sort of thinking. Well, I I, I mean, in 2009, I still believed the Middle East was the center of the universe. And I mean, I was a Middle East, I was sort of an aspiring Arabist. I was an Arabic linguist. And I actually, in, in that deployment in 2007, had met... A fellow CI human officer, uh, Matt Pottinger, who was a Mandarin linguist and a China guy. And I remember I met him in Western Iraq. I remember thinking, why the hell would you 
have spent any time learning about China because the Middle East is where it's at. And of course, Matt turned out to be right and I turned out to be uh, wrong. And so for the last five years, uh, with Matt's help and mentorship, I've been trying to learn a little bit about China, which is where I spend most of my time. But my my thesis and then what became my PhD dissertation uh, later at Georgetown went in a completely different direction. It was more sort of a general grand strategy to examine the the um, the extent to which intelligence affects grand yes. strategy decisions and specifically looked at sort of the early Eisenhower administration. Well, and that's one of the things I like about what you've done, and it kind of harkens back to post-World War II, Congress was dominated by veterans, and even post-Vietnam, it was dominated by veterans. And what a lot of them, I think NPR did a piece on that several years ago, talking about how veterans were more inclined to work out issues together. And you've done a number of initiatives with Democratic colleagues in Congress, you know, not just sticking by party lines, which kind of harkens back to that age that people, I think, are yearning for these days. Well, you know, I certainly believe in in the idea. And I think the promise, there's really a few ways in which I think having more veterans in Congress will produce good outcomes. The first, as you allude to, is, you know, at some basic level, I think veterans have proven their willingness to you know, work in teams to get a difficult job done, uh, you know, and so theoretically that means we're better suited to work across party lines in order to tackle some complex legislation. That's definitely been my experience on the House Armed Services Committee. I mean, a lot of what I do, I do a lot of sea power work. Uh, and, you know, my closest ally in many cases is Representative Elaine Luria, uh, you know, a Navy right. veteran uh, who thinks deeply about shipbuilding and and Navy issues and, and so along similar lines that I do. Um, and I would say the, the relationship also between uh, the chair and, and ranking set a good tone for that subcommittee. Um, you know, my first bill I ever got passed was a, a bill authorizing the construction of a global war on terrorism memorial that I did with Seth Moulton, a fellow Marine veteran from Massachusetts, Democrat. But I think the other way and maybe less appreciated way in which I think veterans can play a constructive role in Congress is in challenging um, the Pentagon bureaucracy. I think there's sort of a tendency among civilians to assume that if someone has a bunch of stars on their shoulder, then their word must be gospel. Uh, and right. with all due respect to our general and flag officers, and I have a great deal of respect for them, they need us to push back. I mean, the Pentagon bureaucracy has an inertia and a status quo bias that needs to be disrupted. And my hope is that veterans are in an ideal position to push back because they've seen what the world looks like at the pointy end of the spear and how messy things uh, can get. And, right. uh, you know, my own experience was that, you know, after the rank of captain, uh, I'm not sure we're optimizing for, for talent in promotion. <laughs> right. I'm just joking. I'm joking, everybody. But, um, well, yeah, you know, McCain, I, I do, I do think John McCain it, was famous for that. I yeah, mean, that was, yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. John McCain yeah. wouldn't just accept what, um, you know, someone testifying for Sask, said just because they're a general officer. And similar right now, we're working through some very complex issues. You know, how do we adopt the deterrence by denial posture uh, to prevent, you know, the CCP from making a move on Taiwan? I mean, there there needs to be a healthy give and take between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And you can ask a different three-star and get a different answer also if they take the That's time right. to do that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I think, in, you know, we we bemoan the the lack of bipartisanship on the Hill. Well, you know, 
you want to talk about a real partisan knife fight. I mean, look at, <laughs> look, look at the inner service, uh, yes. you know, jealousy that we see and struggle for resources. And oftentimes it takes Congress to crack some skulls together and get people working together. Well, and then for your district, too, it's kind of coincidental because even before the LCS had come out, I had contacted and I've interacted with retired SWOs for several years now. And a lot of them wanted the frigate instead of the LCS. Now you've got it back to your home district. And potentially if we get this program up and running, it'll also be in Alabama. One, and from a layman's perspective, my perspective, I think it's important to get our shipbuilding capacity up, which is why your district is very important in that role. Um, but can you speak to this latest budget and whether or not we're going to be able to produce the frigate in the numbers that the Navy needs, especially as we're decommissioning cruisers and even LCSs at the moment? Well, I mean, I'll go in reverse or I think any sort of even a casual observer of the Navy and, you know, admittedly, I'm a, a navalist and a sea power advocate. So I bring a little bit of bias to the debate. But at a time when we've said repeatedly that Indo-PACOM is our priority theater, and therefore, if you just look at a map of Indo-PACOM, it's got a lot of water. I don't think any of our war plans are contemplating an invasion of the Chinese mainland in the Taiwan scenario. Uh, so it stands to reason that this is primarily you know, your priority force in the priority theater is Navy, you know, and, and Air Force. Um, so it doesn't make sense to be cutting the number of ships we have. And make no mistake, this is a cut when you sort of subtract all the ships. Oh, de absolutely. Decommissioning uh, at, at a time when our, our primary defense task is to deter the PLA in general, the PLA Navy uh, specifically, uh, by denial. Um, and then to get to where you started, um, you know, I think any navalist, whether they bring a destroyer bias or a sub bias or take your pick, recognizes that you need a small surface combatant uh, in large numbers uh, to do the yes. day to day deterrence mission. I mean, that was part of the promise of the LCS. We can get into why that promise has not been realized yet. Um, but uh, in any future fleet configuration, the frigate is going to be, um, you know, part of the the foundation of that, and it's going to play oh, okay. a, a critical role uh, in doing that day to day deterrence. And then, should conflict break that break out, also a critical role. And because it's a smaller ship, you know, it can go places that certainly carriers, but also destroyers can't go, and it can show the flag, uh, and that's just incredibly important. So, I will say, I think both the Navy and the shipyard uh, understand the importance of getting this right. I mean, part of the reason that. Fink and Terry was selected is because their design was a proven design, you know, in use in, in multiple allied navies. Absolutely. And so we're trying not to, to overcomplicate it, you know, add a bunch of unnecessary requirements and, and really produce this ship uh, on time, on budget and in the numbers that the Navy needs. But it's going to require an increase to the shipbuilding account. I mean, we also got oh, absolutely. needs for subs. We got needs. That's for all sorts of ships, and, and this budget is is woefully insufficient to that task. That's exact. What you just mentioned is exactly why many of the SWOs I spoke to love this frigate, is because we're not reinventing the wheel. We have a known quantity. It's going to work. We just need to get it done and get it out there and produce as quickly as possible. Yeah, in their you know, opinion. And I'm all for investing in in autonomy. I, I'd like to see us move quicker towards 
autonomous surface uh, vessels and 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 really start to move fast on that. But I think we're still years away from that, and uh, there's some unproven aspects to that technology. And so you got to field capabilities uh, quickly uh, because the window is closing. I mean, we had recent testimony from. Uh, you know, public statements from Admiral Davidson, the former commander of Indo-PACOM, saying that the Chinese can make a move on Taiwan within the next six years. I then asked the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the CNO if they agreed. They did agree. There's been some disagreement with Milley and Austin has demurred. But I think, um, you know, post-Olympics 22, uh, things can start to get really frisky. And she does view Taiwan as a legacy issue. So our challenge right now is to start to think not on a a Battle Force 2045 timeline, but on a Battle Force 2025 timeline in exactly. order to avoid World War III. Well, that's sort of my, I wouldn't say a tough national security question, but China has an estimated ship strength of about 700 ships between the South China Sea and the East China Sea. We have 55 ships assigned in Indo-PACOM. How do we how do we address that challenge in the South China Sea or Taiwan? Because you know people I think tend to forget what an important shipping line of communication the South China Sea is to international trade and security, a whole number of range of issues. Well, you know, I, let me start with the bad news first, and then get to the good news. The bad news, as your question points out, is you know while we've been talking about a 355-ship Navy for at least the last five years, uh, and it's really been kind of Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football on Capitol Hill with all these future fleet assessments and outside studies and internal Navy studies and this and that. And, you know, getting to 355 as soon as practically possible is now officially part of U.S. law, uh, but although it's ignored. Um, you know, the, the Chai Coms went out and actually did the darn thing, right? They, they built right. it over 355 <laughs> ship Navy. Now our ships are better. Got it. More capable, but still, you know, a quantity has a quality all of, of its, its own. own and they're getting better every single day. Um, yeah. now the good news is this, our, our, our fundamental mission, even though, you know, one could argue like we're playing the away game and they're playing a home game. Our fundamental mission is still defensive, right? We're trying to prevent them from altering the status quo. And a military invasion of Taiwan certainly is a very difficult thing uh, to pull off. And then the other thing we have, I think, that works to our advantage is a network of allies that are waking up to Absolutely. this challenge. Right. I think I actually think the Aussies woke up to the China threat a few years before us uh, and, and yes. woke up to the way in which it corrupted their domestic politics. They were the canary in the coal yes. mine. You've seen unprecedented action from uh, the Japanese in recent years in terms of trying to make defense investments. Um, you know, the Taiwanese themselves are are uh, taking steps in, in, in the right direction. And so I think particularly when freed from the constraints of the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, that now allows us to field ground-launched intermediate-range uh, missiles, I think we have an opportunity to work in concert with our allies to adopt that deterrence by denial posture. Now, it's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be easy. It's certainly going to re require the Navy to start thinking differently. It's going to require some basing access agreements. It's going to require us to get creative with concepts like containerized fires to really screw up the OODA loop of the PLA Navy. But I think we can do it. And, uh, you know, I tend to think that Taiwan is you know, it is to the, the new Cold War what Berlin was to the old Cold War. Uh, it, it is the, right. the strong point for, uh, geopolitical competition. Now, the final thing I'm saying, I'm sorry to go on is one thing I've struggled with is 
is really to convey the stakes and the importance of Taiwan in this competition in a way that resonates in Northeast Wisconsin, because it can seem like a very distant thing. You know, I think we need to do a better job, those of us in elected office, of really sort of communicating why why this is important, why why this would likely result in a broader conflict or result in the collapse of American deterrence entirely. And I'm just not sure we've we figured it out, or at least I certainly have not yet figured it out. Right. Um, and since we have limited time, I want to get back to the report that you commissioned with Senator Cotton and others. Um, you know, and I've, I've talked to some sailors. There was an article in the National Review from an enlisted sailor calling the debauchery problem in the Navy. Um, you know, sailors basically, my takeaway from both of those accidents, one of the basic things was just the sailors being overworked and undertrained is the oversimplified answer to what led to both of these, so to speak. And I mentioned it to a retired SWO, and he said, well, it's interesting you say that because he and some of his friends were talking about it. And he mentioned, as a naval aviator, you have 18 to 24 months in the pipeline. As a sub guy, you have two years in the pipeline. As a SWO, it's three years. Considering how complex these ships have become over the years, it's a remarkably short time frame to expect a young officer to become proficient at commanding a ship, which is immensely more complex than any civilian could comprehend, I think. Well, to to show you the extent to which the Marine Corps has forever brainwashed me, I mean, what's our foundational experience as a Marine Corps officer? It's it's going, well, after officer camp school, it's going to the basic school. And the basic school is named the basic school because they teach you the basics of being a Marine officer. They're, and you are forever ingrained with the idea that success or failure is a matter of brilliance in the basics. It's not the sexy school. It's not the high speed school. It's how do you master the basics? And I think, you know, I look at this report and our primary finding was that the Navy drifted away from a laser focus on the basics of war fighting and seamanship. And in the aftermath of the cold war piled more and more administrative requirements on officers that are unrelated to finding and sinking enemy ships. And the result is that even as threats have grown, we've lost some of our warfighting edge. Now, I think a fair criticism, though we didn't rule this out, that's that's bound up in this, this bigger problem or related problem, which is the nation and civilian leadership uh, in particular is asking the Navy to do much more with less. And we have a, a really a mismatch between the stated goals of our strategy at the, the national security strategy, national defense strategy, and the resources we're willing to uh, apply to achieving those goals. And so the Navy is is stressed uh, yeah. as a result, right? And isn't getting that training time. Isn't It doesn't have that time to really uh, develop and, and iterate brilliance in, in the basics. So those two things are sort of they're they're correlated uh, in in my my mind, um, but we I think the overall you know message from the report is that we can and and must do better. Otherwise, we're going to see more accidents. You know, a, a provocative statement. I'm speaking outside the report now, but I've said before is that you sort of add up the cost of all these collisions, you, and then you add to that uh, the Bonhomme Richard, and then you add just sort of the way in which some of our best naval officers were caught up in the Fat Leonard scandal. We've done more damage to our own Navy than the PLA Navy could have ever hoped to do over the last 10 years. And that should be 
a real wake up call to all of us who care about sea power or just national defense in general. Right. It, it, one, one of the takeaways from the report that really struck me was one of the chiefs that said, well, if you ask a sailor if they're up to date on some training, that the latest training that comes out of the Pentagon that may not have anything to do with being a sailor, they're up to date because it's a requirement. But if you ask them if they're up to date on their training on how to do their job, well, that's a whole nother question. Yeah. yeah. So my last question since we're crunched for time, is I think a lot of people are interested to see if you might run for Senator Johnson's seat. Will you be the next John McCain in the Senate? Well, my my uh, belief is that uh, Senator Johnson will run again, and I'll certainly support him uh, if he does. So you're not going to get me to bite uh, on that question you know, I think regardless of where I end up, um, you know, whether it's a, another term in the House, I'm going to maintain my focus on on national security in general and then and sea power uh, in particular. And I hope that, you know, I, I've brought a little bit of a, a new perspective to these debates. Some of the work I've been able to do with Senator Angus King on cyber has been been greatly uh, rewarding. And uh, I think our nation's about to go through an, a very severe test this decade. Uh, you know, the terrible 20s are here. They're going to get much worse. I think the relationship with China is going to get much worse before it gets better. And it's going to test our metal. Uh, and you add, add on to that a lot of the internal divisions that we have. Uh, you know, I just want to be part of the team that helps helps us survive, helps us to emerge from that crisis stronger. Uh, and whether that's me working in Congress or the private sector or, you know, you know, the commandant asked me to put my uniform back on and take a PFT and, you know, go deploy <laughs> to somewhere in the first island chain. You know, I just want to do my part to uh, defend the country. Representative Mike Gallagher, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, hopefully we can chat again and expound on some of these issues that you feel are so important. But thank you once again for joining Real Clear Defense today. Thanks for having me. I got to go vote, but uh, hope to see you in person next time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, see ya. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>